An Old Testament reading this morning from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. We find here in the prophet Jeremiah the promise of a new covenant and will be pertinent to our hearing from the scriptures this morning in the sermon. So Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. Here, the reading of God's holy word. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Amen. And then go forward to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Once again, God's holy word, he gives it to us, his people, for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. For the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Hear now the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am painfully reminded whenever there's some kind of project, it doesn't matter what uh, field of handiness it falls under, but I'm painfully reminded that I, I don't know any of the typical trades, and I have never been uh, to trade school. The whole point of trade school is, of course, to get you into the trades, to start providing you with full and meaningful employment. It's really not intended to stand on its own. There may be many ways in which you can uh, learn about being handy as a, uh, in plumbing or electrical work uh, without going to trade school. Many ways of attaining that knowledge. I'm always jealous of my father-in-law. He's one of those guys who can kind of look at anything and just sort of figure out how it works as uh, he goes along. So there would be something nonsensical, wouldn't there be, about going all the way through trade school and then uh, not entering 
that trade, not entering the workforce. The, the, the one leads to the other, and, and it goes hand in hand, teaches you kind of how you are to, to work and operate while you're on the job in a certain organization or union or whatever. They go hand in hand. Similarly, it would be nonsensical to enter the work officially after you finish all of your schooling, all of your trade school, and just disregard all of your training, to to write it all off, to intentionally forget about it and never work in accordance with it. You would probably not keep your job for long. In today's passage, Jesus teaches us about the important and close relationship between the Old Testament scriptures and himself and his teaching, and what he is doing. He is the point and the, the center of it all. It's, it's all leading us to him. It's all pointing us to him. It's all teaching us about him and opening up the meaning of his work. And similarly, life in him does not mean writing it all off. It doesn't mean disregarding all that has come before. Because if he is the point and center of it all, then he has come not to destroy, not to abolish, but to fulfill, to open it up, to teach us the depth of its meaning. So three ideas that we'll focus on today. First, trust in the law's fulfiller. Trust in the law's fulfiller. Jesus fulfills the law. Secondly, live trusting in the law's interpreter. We're going to think about how the interpretation of all of these things has to be done through Jesus Christ. We look at these things through Jesus Christ now. And then finally, live trusting that the lawgiver will give you the heart to obey. Live trusting that the lawgiver will give you the heart to obey. There's, uh, that's not as smooth as I would have wanted. A little clunky on those three main points, but it gets the point across. So first, trust in the law's fulfiller. Trust in the law's fulfiller. Jesus begins with an emphatic phrase meant to get our attention. Do not think. Do not think this way. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He says this obviously because there would be some kind of danger that people would tend to think that that is exactly what he has come to do. What is that danger? And what is it about uh, Jesus or about his teaching that some people might have thought? Is there something in us that tends to want to think this way. Well, yes, there is. When something new, fashionable, trendy, stylish comes along, people are tempted to go all in on it. It might be a a new piece of technology. It might be a a new clothing style. It might be, uh, you know, something else in life. Some people may turn over their entire wardrobe or do come close to doing it each and every year. When something new comes along, you say, well, maybe we, we have to shift everything that we're doing to this. You know, we have to shift everything to this way of thinking. Uh, I have a few people that I know that are all in on these personality tests. And it seems like every couple of years, there's a new one. So I've been hearing about this, this Enneagram thing. And before, there was this other personality test. And we have to sort of measure everyone that we come into contact with with these kinds of things. You might think of the, the late 20th century in uh, the church growth movement. It was thought that in order to reach the lost, one must do away with all of the, the churchiness of church. That, that's really the answer. That's what's going to get people uh, through the doors if you make church feel a lot less churchy. So organs, pews, hymnals, stained glass, all of these had to go. And that's going to be what uh, gets you uh, on the right track. Thankfully, we 
missed that memo, organs, pews, hymnals, stained glass. We still have them all here because we believe in the power of the gospel and that the work of the church does not consist in man-made strategies and that we are to testify to the unchanging nature of God in all of those things. Once there's a mad rush to a new thing, it tends to only gather speed and energy until it falls apart in one way or another. More and more people are trying to to, to get in on it and to make it their new thing. And in the case of Jesus, as people started to take notice of his ministry, to listen closely to him, to give allegiance to him, inevitably the question would have come, well, what does this now mean and how does it connect with everything we've learned up until this point? The reason that it's so dangerous, this is such a dangerous temptation, is because deep within our sinful human hearts, there is something so enticing about being set free from the connections and the safeguards and the accountability and the laws that we have around us. I remember a dear friend of mine, he was kind of moving most of the way across the country, and he was just reflecting that as he was moving and he was between churches, he left his church in one place and uh, had not yet arrived where he was going to live, and then there was a process of trying to find a church, but he just reflected on the fact that as he was sort of between churches, he started to feel uh, temptations and tuggings at his heart in ways that he had not felt before. And he knew that it had something to do with the fact that he was not under the supervision and the accountability that he had been right before he had left. It's something that tugs at all of our hearts. If we think we can get away with something, we will be all the more tempted to do it. Another example is what we've seen recently is as law enforcement comes under fire and becomes really one of the most criticized aspects of our society. Whenever you see that kind of conversation taking place, what always follows it is a spike in violent crime because people feel as though the law is not going to be enforced. So they're tempted to act out on it. It's the same thing with uh, when you have a substitute teacher when you are in school you automatically think, well, this person is not going to be able to enforce the rules the way that our normal teacher is. So when the substitute teacher comes in, the kids tend to be a bit more unruly. It's the same thing that happens when a young person is faced with temptation, when his or her parents uh, leave them alone in the house for a weekend. What can I get away with? If the law is no longer enforced, we feel these kinds of pulls at us. Jesus says, do not think this way. This is not what I have come to do. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. The word for abolish there usually would have been associated with tearing down buildings. The the total destruction of a building. In our house, the older girls know that if they want to build something, build Legos on the ground, or do a puzzle on the ground, if they do it on the floor, there's a good chance that Ty is going to come in, and what's he going to do? He's just going to abolish it. He's going to dismantle it, because he's right at that age where he knows he can break things, and he will leave nothing the way that it was. That's why we say he's like a Roman, right? He leaves not one stone left upon another. And Jesus is saying, this is what he has not come to do. He has not come to abolish, to destroy the law or the prophets. That phrase, the law or the prophets, 
really is, is, is probably best taken as, as a reference to the entire Old Testament scriptures. Jesus, Jesus is going to focus in specifically on commands and commandments later on in this passage. But this is really it's a stand-in for the entire Hebrew Bible. I have not come so that you may write off, disregard, not pay any attention to the Old Testament. All that has come before me. It could be. It probably was that people who had taken an interest in Jesus thought maybe this means that all of this is just sort of done away with, right? Because he, generally speaking, he's teaching in uh, very unique places. Here you are the Sermon on the Mount. So he's not completely tied to the temple or the synagogue. He's not operating in the way that the religious ruling class was operating in that day. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish. I've come to Fulfill. So what does that mean, to fulfill? Well, the word here is to fill up or to complete. And what that means is that with the coming of Christ, we have the entire object to which the Old Testament was pointing. We have the entire subject about which it is teaching. With the coming of Christ, the Old Testament now cannot be fully and properly understood without Jesus Christ, without reference to Jesus Christ. This is now how we understand the whole of the scriptures. One way of viewing this might be to say that Jesus is like the final piece of a puzzle. You know, when you work on a puzzle, maybe you've had the experience where you just about get done with it and there is just one piece left, but there is one piece that is missing. Now, this is a lot easier in our house because we do the we're doing the 20 and 25 piece puzzles, so usually the pieces are about this big, easy to find. It's tough to do if it ever happens with a 1,000 piece puzzle or something like that. But you've got one piece missing, and you start searching around for it. Where, where's that last piece? Where is it? And then you find it, and what a relief. But when you find the last piece of the puzzle, it's not difficult to know where it goes. Right? That's really how you almost start teaching kids how to do puzzles. You, you kind of give them the entire outline and show them this fits in here in a certain kind of way. Is that what it means that Jesus fulfills, completes the law? Well, I don't think that really captures it perfectly. It's not to say that he is the final piece of the puzzle, though in one sense he is, but it goes beyond that. The unfolding of redemptive history could be likened more to something like building a car. As the process of building a car progresses, you see more and more the shape and the look of the car. The frame, the body, the chassis, the paint, the the interior, it's all coming together. The coming of Jesus, the coming of Christ, is, is like putting in all of the components in the car that allow it to really fulfill its deepest purpose, its central purpose. So you put in the engine, the axles, the wheels and tires, the fuel... Jesus is what allows the vehicle of redemptive history to fulfill its purpose. A car is built, most of the time, to get from point A to point B, to get you somewhere. What is the point of redemptive history? What is the point of what God was doing from Genesis up until the coming of Christ? Well, it was to save sinners. That is the point, to glorify God in the salvation of of sinners. This does not mean that those who lived before Jesus had no hope of salvation. It doesn't mean that they're sort of sitting in a car without an engine and without wheels and tires. They were saved, similarly to us, by grace, through faith 
in the coming Redeemer by the promises of God. So when someone in the Old Testament, by faith, looked forwards to this coming Redeemer by God's promises and by his covenant grace, it was almost as if God brought them forward in time to the point where the car was finished. Because how will any sins in the history of humanity be forgiven? By the blood of Jesus Christ. So they looked forward by faith and the benefits of Christ came back to them. But there is something that uh, shifts, that develops when Jesus Christ comes. And you see, that's why the, the New Testament writers speak often of this word, the mystery of Christ, which in their sense is not something that's still mysterious and hidden. It was something that was hidden, but now was revealed. We have this revealed salvation. So this means, as we said, you cannot rightly understand now the Old Testament without reference ultimately to Jesus Christ. This is the the great error of Judaism as it now stands. It, It fails to see that the Old Testament does not stand on its own and it was never intended to stand on its own. The New Testament is concealed within the Old Testament. This springs out of our conviction that God does not change his plans on the fly. He's not sort of experimenting with redemptive history. Well, maybe this will work. Maybe the Garden of Eden will work. No, it doesn't work. Okay, well, let's try and just generally go about, uh, you know, humanity. No, the flood with Noah. Let's try something else. Let's try Abraham. God is not that kind of a God. He has had everything shaped by his decree from eternity. We know what it means that the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus, or prophecies, that tell us the kind of savior that he is. And famous prophecies like Isaiah 53 that look forward to the cross. All that has been written about him either has been fulfilled or it will be fulfilled. But what does it mean that the law is completed in Jesus? The law governed man's relationship with God and especially, uh, obviously, within Israel. You can think of the law in its broad sense in basically three categories. There are the, the moral commands... There are the regulations of their worship, the temple worship, and there were all the laws that governed Israel, particularly as a nation state. They governed Israel's relationship with God. And so here we come to consider, really, the glorious point upon which uh, all of our salvation stands, upon which we build all of our hope. How does Jesus fulfill the law? Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Born under the law, to redeem those under, who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. The first thing that we are reminded of here is that Jesus fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. And this is really an amazing thing for us to consider. We ask God this morning to bring to our remembrance the sins that we committed, but we did not even realize that we had committed because there are so many ways in which we do that that we cannot track them all, or we cannot remember them all, or we cannot notice them all. We realize that we break God's law even before we break it outwardly, that there are contours of and desires within our hearts which offend God's righteousness, which dwell within our hearts even before we act on them. These things are sinful in themselves and we must repent of them. When the eyes of our hearts, when the eyes of faith turn and look to the beauty of our Savior, we realize that he never once, in any sense, disobeyed or broke the law of God. 
He never broke any rule which his father, or commandment which his father gave to his people. And his heart was never inclined to break it either. This does not mean he did not undergo genuine temptation. As a, someone with human nature, uh, he did experience temptation. How we put all that together in some ways is a mystery because, of course, he, he is fully God. He is true, true God. And God is not like man that he should sin. But his heart was never inclined to break God's law. There was never any sinful desires within his heart. And this becomes all the more glorious when we realize that this is the exact level of perfection and righteousness that God demanded of his creatures. A level which only Christ could have fulfilled for fallen man. But there's not only positive demands of the law. It's not just that the law of God demands a positive righteousness. There are also negative sanctions of the law. Because of the law of God, God's, uh, God must punish rebellion against him. The law of God reveals our sin. As we often read the Ten Commandments in that way. The negative sanction of the law is that all sin must be punished by God's wrath. And this, of course, brings us to the cross. Where we see our beautiful Savior, the one who fulfilled the law's positive demands. He is the one who then also bears the law's negative sanctions or punishments. All in one person. The only one who could have done it. The same one. Who was willing to do it. Imagine that you have a terminal disease and you need uh, a, a vital organ to be donated to you from someone. And you could line up everyone in the entire world. And before they take the test of compatibility, they ask that person, are you actually willing? If you're compatible, are you actually willing to go ahead and do this for this person to save their life? Imagine that of everyone in the world, there's only one person who tests as a compatible donor to you. But you're also told that there was only one person who answered in the affirmative that they are willing to help you. You probably would not be very confident that of all all the billions of people in this world, the one person with whom you were compatible is the one person who is willing. But that is what we have in Jesus Christ. The one person who is able to fulfill all righteousness is the one who is willing to go to the cross and to bear God's wrath for us. That is the message of forgiveness. That is the only hope of forgiveness. Jesus Christ crucified for us. And that is why the reminder that Jesus fulfills the law is a call to repentance and faith, to trust in Jesus Christ, because you will find an adequate Savior nowhere else. This is your only hope of salvation, to turn to Jesus Christ, to repent of your sin, and to place your trust in him. The appearance of our Savior declares to us That the scriptures are being fulfilled. They are not being abolished. Jesus fulfills the law. And then secondly, live trusting in the law's interpreter. Live trusting in the law's interpreter. Or you could say the law's interpretation. How do we go back and consider all of these things in the Old Testament scriptures now with a lens that views them through Christ. In verse 18, Jesus strongly emphasizes that uh, the law's abiding characteristics, nothing will disappear from the law until the end of the age, right? Until heaven and earth disappear. Nothing is going to disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, until it all comes to pass. In other words, everything that has been predicted in Scripture, so the end of all things. This, this isn't Jesus saying, 
once the cross and the resurrection happens, then you can disregard it. He says nothing will pass away. God's word stands forever. And on this side of the consummation, nothing in the Bible is to be dismissed as useless. This again brings us back to our desire to get out from under things. If you remember, I'm not sure if you do, it, it, it kind of hid underneath the main headlines of the news. But back in November, there was a presidential election. I'm not sure if you remember that or, or even noticed it. But uh, the, the one who eventually won the election, our current president, one of the things that he said was that well, my, basically my first action in office is going to be to sign executive orders that undo all of the executive orders of the current president. His message was, I have come to abolish. I have come to wipe away. I have come to undo all that he has done. Right? And that was obviously very attractive to many people for all of the votes uh, that he garnered. That was essentially his whole uh, case. I am not this guy, so vote for me. We have a desire deep within us often to get out from under things. Jesus once again affirms that though he is not acting in accord with the ruling religious class, he has not come to undo anything that his father has established. But at the same time, we know that we are not living and living religiously, uh, particularly, the way that Old Testament Israel do, did, much as it is administered differently than it was then. I just finished reading Leviticus this past week in some devotional reading. In chapter 1, you have all the various sacrifices, sacrifices that we do not do anymore. You have all of the feasts laid out later in Leviticus, feasts that we uh, do not observe. When we think about our affirmation of faith today, Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Those things only continue to have meaning or their intended meaning if we read, study, and think about the scriptures from which they come. And the same is true for all of the things that we read about that were part of either the old covenant worship or the theocratic nation of Israel. They have not passed away in the most proper sense. They have been fulfilled in Christ and thus they have not been abolished. But here is where trusting in Christ becomes so important. Listen to the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. In his death, resurrection, and ascension, the whole of the ceremonial law, that's the law of worship, has been entirely fulfilled. In confirmation of that, as it were, the temple was later destroyed. And here's the key. So that unless I see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the altar and the sacrifice, and the labor of washing, and the incense, and everything else, I am still bound to that Levitical order. Unless I see all this fulfilled in Christ, and unless he is my burnt offering, my sacrifice, my everything, all this ceremonial law still applies to me, and I shall be held responsible unless I perform it. But seeing it all fulfilled and carried out in him, I say that I am fulfilling it all by believing in him and by subjecting myself to him. All of those worship regulations that in many ways are mysterious to us and we wonder about the old covenant temple and the tabernacle and the ways of worship, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So as I trust in Jesus Christ and in his work, right? he, is my, he is my altar, my sacrifice, he's the labor, the labor of washing, all of these things, as I believe and trust in him and subject myself to him, then we 
see the fulfillment of that law carried out in him. It has not been abolished. It's been fulfilled in Christ. The same holds true for Israel as a theocratic nation. Modern-day Jews are still called to hope and work for the reestablishment of Israel in a particular place in the world. But as we hope in Jesus and believe in the teaching that flows from his life, we understand that the earthly theocratic nation was pointing us to the heavenly people created in Christ and headed for the heavenly Jerusalem. But what all of that means is that we still need to go to the scriptures, which are our scriptures. We need to go to the Old Testament, which is part of our Bible and inspired and authoritative. And we need to, uh, to lay all of that out. Why? Because they open up and magnify the glory of Christ. And they call us once again to place all of the confidence of our hearts in the one who fulfills all of it. Every line of scripture leads us to Jesus Christ. Every line of scripture is part of our scriptures and we exist underneath it and we view it with a lens, through the lens of Christ. And finally, trust that the lawgiver will give you the heart to obey. So we talked about the temple, we talked about the theocratic nation, and what about all of the moral commands of Scripture? We all understand as we think about the Ten Commandments week after week, you know, Jesus comes to earth and it's not as if you know, murder is now okay. It's not as if adultery is now okay or stealing. Right? All of those moral commands obviously still apply along with the first table of the law. We are to honor God. We are to honor the Sabbath. We are not to take God's name in vain. We are to not create idols that are sinful. Well, we think about this in relation to uh, the promise of the new covenant. We read Jeremiah 31, and we see that the new covenant will be a, a fuller realization of what was taught in the Old Testament, the circumcision of the heart. God was calling his people, circumcise your hearts. And it is expanded because the glory of Christ's accomplished and manifested salvation. So a key passage to understand in relation to this is Romans chapter 8. Listen to this. There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Notice the two steps there. Christ sets us free from the law of sin and death. That is forgiveness, that is justification, that is being counted righteous by God, uh, righteous by God before God by faith in Christ. And he also empowers us to walk as he did when we walk by the Spirit. Listen to the words once again of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, this is most important and significant. For the apostle here links together two things. The way in which our Lord fulfilled the law himself and the way in which he fulfills the law in us. That is precisely what our Lord says in Matthew 5. He fulfills the righteousness of the law and we are to do the same. The two go together. That, very simply, is the Christian life. We live by faith in Christ and his keeping and fulfilling the law. And we realize that as we trust in him, he sets us free from the law of sin and death. All of our sins are wiped away. They're washed away. And we are considered righteous before God. 
And we are freed up to then render genuine obedience to God. But how do we do that? By walking by the Spirit that we are uh, given in Christ and that Christ gives to us. As we walk by faith, as we walk by the Spirit, we believe that even though all of our obedience is imperfect and partial, we believe that God accepts our genuine obedience for the sake of His Son in whom we trust. And so the glory of Christ is not only that He washes your sins away and makes you new and righteous before God, It is that as you trust in Jesus Christ and seek to, in an ongoing way, render genuine obedience to God in walking by the Spirit, God accepts our sincere and genuine obedience as a sanctified fulfillment of the law. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God accepts our good works and obedience. And so verse 19 emphasizes to us that we are not to be those who disregard the law of God. We are not to be those who downplay the commandments of God. Well, now that Christ has come, obedience, it kind of takes a back seat. Jesus emphasizes to us that, that those who hold up the law as important, those who hold up the commandments of God will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Our hearts resonate with the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Christ, by the Holy Spirit, gives to us a heart that loves the law. Why? Because ultimately, Psalm 119 is a reflection of the heart of Christ. Christ was the one who came and loved the law of God. Christ was the one who meditated on it all the day. So we love the commands of God. We love the law of God because Christ loved the law of God. Psalm 119, verse 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. So that is to be our prayer, that we would begin more and more to love what Christ loved, to act like Christ acted, because we see the promise of change from the inside out. That's the promise of the new covenant, the law written on the hearts. Verse 20 shows us that the the righteousness of Christ's kingdom is a righteousness that is qualitatively better than that of the Pharisees who did everything by outward conformity. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people think that what Jesus is doing is saying, the Pharisees are the, the most righteous in our society, and your righteousness needs to exceed that which is impossible. And so they take it as just another call to trust in Christ, but uh, by faith, so that you might be righteous by faith. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. We need to think about Jesus' own estimation of the Pharisees. What did he say about them? Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, what an image that is, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what, what Jesus is calling his people, his followers to do, in this last reminder in verse 20, is to trust that the lawgiver will give you 
the heart to obey, to trust that he, as the all-powerful and all-glorious one, creates a people who seek to genuinely honor God from the inside out, who are not focused primarily on the externals, that we understand that it is about a heart change that God gives to us by the power of the Spirit, and from that heart change flows genuine obedience. Proverbs 4, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. All that flows out into our life is an outworking of that which is in our hearts. So Jesus is once again pointing us back to himself, but he's saying, my people who live by faith, trusting in me as the fulfillment of the law, as the right interpretation of the law. They are the ones who will look to me and walk by faith and from their changed hearts will render true, sincere, and genuine obedience. So trust in the law's fulfiller. Live trusting in the law's interpretation. And live trusting that the lawgiver will give you a heart that's willing and ready to obey. Let's pray. Great God, we look to you and we look to Christ by faith. We ask that you would impress these truths upon our hearts and that we would seek to render unto you true and genuine obedience as we walk by the Spirit, that we would give you all of the glory for it and that we would always be living by faith in Christ and seeking to bring glory to you, understanding that all that we do is by your grace. All that we do is according to the change that you bring about uh, in us, unless you get all the glory for it. So be glorified in our lives as we look to Christ by faith. In his name we pray. Amen.